Should we start? Sounds like a plan. <laughs> Science sounds like a plan. So, ladies and gentlemen, good morning, good evening, good afternoon. I'm glad to welcome all of you on this session about project management book talks, and we continue our series because there was a huge interest from your side. Uh, my name is Lela Machaidze. I am project management professional and I'm in project management for more than 15 years. Uh, I'm working uh, with the clients from all over the world. And I, if you want to hear more about me, you can visit my social media sites where I put tips and tricks about leadership, about future of project management. A uh, couple words about today's logistics. Now, we will have this session recorded and put on the YouTube channel so you or your colleagues or friends have ability to watch it later. Uh, please use chat section for your questions. We will be addressing them later. The session with Gerald will take 45 minutes and then we will address Q&A questions from the chat later during the uh, Q&A um, session. So uh, I would like to welcome on this session, uh, one of the best selling book author uh, about project management. Actually, he's five book author and he's a thought leader for the implementation of the project portfolio and PMOs in the organization. Please warm welcome to Garrett Keldell. Carol, hi. Hi, how are you? I'm doing good. How about you? It's fantastic. You have a very nice view. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it seems you are in a, like in jungles or like, like in the forest. Um, this is called a plantation view. It's an old plantation. Uh, but, you know, like many of our news media today, it's fake news. <laughs> it's actually a picture that hangs in my bedroom and I use it as a background for Zoom uh -huh. meetings. <laughs> uh -huh. Excellent, excellent. So um, first of all, thank you for agreeing on this talk and it is really a pleasure to have a, uh, to spend a, an hour talking about project and portfolio management with you. So uh, in order to start and warm up our conversation, the first question probably I will ask, what do you think which is more difficult to be a project manager or to be married? Well, <laughs> both are very difficult. And believe me, I've worked uh, in Asia and Europe and all over the US, down in Brazil, uh, you know, many different countries and cultures. And it's the same everywhere. I mean, both are difficult. People struggle with human relationships and, and they struggle with, with projects. Um, and, and the reason is that in both cases, we're working with uh, systems that are not valid in terms of being designed to help us get to a common goal. So for example, in a marriage, uh, many marriages don't even have a common goal that they've expressed together, but then there are individual goals that sometimes are shared, sometimes they're not shared. But if the system is not designed to help that relationship uh, flourish and meet those goals, then it's kind of doomed to failure in, in the long run. And the same thing is true with, with projects that um, often projects uh, are not designed to exist within an organization within the capacity the organization has to do projects. 
the system doesn't remove or deal effectively with conflicts that occur within the system. And we know uh, in every project management environment in the world, there are many conflicts over resources. Uh, there are conflicts between functional areas and meeting, you know, trying to meet their goals versus the overall uh, company or organization goals. So we can, we'll dive more into, into the whole thinking and systems approach, I'm sure, as, as we get into the questions. Absolutely, absolutely. We will get here in deeper into each topic because uh, when I had a discussion, pre, uh, preliminary discussion with the portfolio managers, uh, this is especially challenging what you just mentioned uh, with the uh, remote uh, environment. So the, the, you need to create ecosystem and this is completely changing the, the, the model. So just to start with your book, when you first realized that you wanted to write the book? So <laughs> I was a child and I actually uh, grew up with one abusive parent and um, I had acceptance and love at school, but not at home with, with this one parent. And so my, my forte at school was writing. Uh, and so, you know, my teachers always commented favorably on my writing. So that's the thing that really motivated me from the time I was a child. Um, and then when I started my first job, which was with IBM as a systems engineer, I was outside of the job writing articles uh, for publication in magazines, tech, tech magazines. Um, and then the first book, um, uh, before I wrote the first book, I had met with an author, and uh, this was a very successful author. And I asked him about, you know, writing a book and how to be successful. And he said to me something that I always remember, and this goes back like almost 30 years. He said, there are three types of authors. There's the author that wants to write a book and never does. <laughs> There's the author that writes one book and then they've had enough because it is you know, a lot of work and a lot of pain. And then there's what he calls the real author, which is the author that keeps on writing books. So I was motivated you know, with the first book when uh, I met this fellow by the name of Steve Rollins. That's actually my second book. Uh, met a fellow by the name of Steve Rollins, who was chairman of the PMO Special Interest Group for PMI. And he invited me to be a guest speaker and we talked about co-authoring a book together on PMOs, which, you know, back in 2002 was, a, you know, just starting out as a concept. Um, and, uh, and I said, do you mind if I do some research when I give my talk at your, at your group? And so he said, no, absolutely, that would be great. And so I went to the group to speak and I, there were around 150 people in, in this group in uh, Indiana. And, um, I asked the group, how many of you have a direct connection to either the CEO or one of the senior executives of your companies? And out of the 150 people, no one raised their hand. And so, okay, you know, there's something wrong with this picture. I have to write a book on this topic. <laughs> Sorry for the long-winded answers. Yeah. 
actually, it's interesting. Uh, actually, uh, most of the project managers, we, including myself, uh, I read immediately all the books that are about PM uh, project management. Uh, especially, we were eager to wait for the PMBOK last edition, the seventh edition, which came uh, just uh, a few months ago. What do you think, what is the difference and what your book adds to the PIM book of, uh, and other books, PM books? Well, the, the problem I always had with the PIM book was it's a very big book. Yes. There's a, there's a lot of good uh, data in the book, but there's a difference between data and information. So, information is the answer to the question asked and the question that we should be asking in project management is how can we build a system in one or two sentences tell me how we can build a system that's going to deliver our goals 95 percent or more of the time without management intervention mm -hmm. And to me, the PMBOK, while it has a lot of good detail, uh, you'd have a hard time finding the answer to that question in, in the book. And so in my book, I try to, to answer the question. And what I'm saying is my book is not in conflict with the PMBOK. It's just the PMBOK is designed as a body of knowledge with a lot of detail in it, but you also need the 50,000 foot view and you need to understand what is a system that can meet the goals 95% of the time. Um, my book is very, very, every book I've written is very much about focus. Focus on the one thing that's going to make a difference right now based on the root cause of many problems that are going on. So for example, in, in project management, um, do we understand what the capacity is of our organization to do projects? And at least when I studied the PMBOK, which you know goes back many, many years, the answer was not there. But you have to be able to answer that question is so fundamental to having a system that can be predictable, that can meet the goals 95% of the time. So that's an, another example. It's, it's really dictating the, the systems approach. Um, and doing it at a high level. And then some, some details are actually not in the PMBOK, uh, but are in my book. You know, for example, at, at least I'm, I'm going back, you know, probably 20 years in terms of my knowledge of, of the PMBOK. Um, for example, uh, how do you build a good network? Because most networks that I've seen are, are horrible. Um, I, I went to a company in Australia that had 2000 projects. And the president of that company mandated that every project had to have a project network before they started the project. And sure enough, you know, I interviewed maybe 15 project managers in the organization, and they all showed me the project networks that they had for the projects that they were running. Unfortunately, <laughs> the project networks were all in their desk gathering dust. They hadn't used them since the project started because they weren't valid any longer. <laughs> so, you know, how do you build a, a project network that's going to be valid throughout the life of the project? So these are the kinds of questions that my, my books deal with. 
Yeah, it's actually um, interesting how you built your book and how you start the book with the question like in the almost first chapter of your book, you start with the right people, yeah, uh, with the right tools, right data, and still how somehow we managed to have a wrong result and having a PMO which is failing, right? Correct. So what, uh, what do you think? Why do we fail if we have all the right tools, right people? So I, I believe one of the keys and, and, you know, one thing that it's just my opinion, I'm not trying to insult anyone in the audience, but I, I believe that we as a project management group have not done a good job of educating our senior executives in, in the company about what project management is, how it relates to their goals, and how to ensure that uh, the projects that are being run by the company are actually going to meet the goals of the company. You know, for example, um, the company in Australia that, that I was asked to study and then report back to the, the chief executive officer of the company or what they call the general manager over there. Um, 2000 active projects. Now they had a few hundred people in their, in their company that were, let's say white collar workers that were actually capable of, of managing and executing projects. And the blue collar workers were mostly not given the empowerment to do that. They were uh, working in retail stores, they were doing uh, maintenance on customer equipment. Um, and it's not that they weren't capable of being managers, but they weren't given the empowerment to do that. And out of the several hundred white collar workers in that organization, maybe 10 or 15 could have been active, very active on projects, you know, based on the fact they all had full-time jobs. They were all overworked. Nonetheless, they had 2000 projects active. So I interviewed all the project managers and I interviewed all the senior executives. Not one single project was tangibly and measurably linked to the goals of the company. When I say measurably linked, tell me how much of the company goal this project is going to achieve. Nobody can answer that. <laughs> and so when I gave this feedback you know, to, to the president, first of all, he was shocked. And then uh, he said, well, what do you think I should do? And I said, you really have the capacity to maybe do 15 projects. Um, and so he, the first thing he did is he forced everybody to tangibly and measurably link their project to the goals of the company. And if they couldn't come up with a reasonably um, simple explanation of how they were linked and make that commitment, the project was frozen or killed. So, I mean, that's, that's an example of how little the executives really understand uh, the link between the projects they're doing and achieving their goals. The resource conflicts you know, that go on in, in organizations are just incredible. Why do we continue to let those go on? And again, I believe it's that lack of understanding of the executives that they have a capacity in their organization to do projects. And if they exceed that capacity, it's like uh, creating a traffic jam on, on the highways. 
nothing's going to move. Everything's going to come to a standstill. And we see in organizations that a project that we need to complete this year to meet our, our organization goals, it takes years and years and years to complete. And it just keeps going on and on and on. And then it only meets a portion of the goals, not all of the goals. So I think this, this um, lack of executive, it, let's call it understanding, um, involvement, and some degree of, of control over that multi-project environment is missing. And we as a project management community are not succeeding in overcoming that. And that's why PMOs fit. Interesting. You uh, mentioned as one of, you mentioned several times the capacity. How do you measure the capacity? Can you give us a, a few tips or we should just refer to your books? Is it covered in your book? <laughs> yes, I have to feed my dog next week. So please buy my <laughs> books. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the very bad sense of you. Um, I'll give you one story and then I'll give you two uh, simple techniques that I cover in my, in my book. Mm -hmm. um, one is, this is a smaller company. At the time, I call them smaller. At the time, they were around $20 million. Um, and, and it was a manufacturing company that makes custom kitchens, very, very nice high-end kitchens, kitchen cabinets, um, and sells them through stores or retailers, uh, design centers in, in different cities across North America. And uh, I got a call from the president of the company and he said, he said, Jerry, uh, you know, you've done a terrific job on strategy in the last few years, but we have a problem right now. And our, our problem is sales. Um, if you think back to 2008 and the recession, the very bad recession that hit worldwide in 2008, one of the industries that got hit the earliest and got hit the hardest was the kitchen cabinet industry. Anyone involved with home building and uh, outfitting for homes and materials and so on. Um, they were down at 50% of their, you know, what they were used to selling. Uh, and already a lot of their competitors had gone bankrupt. And so um, he said, we need to know how to do projects in order to overcome the sales issue. So, I went to their offices. This was in Manitoba, Canada, or in, in the province of Manitoba, Canada. And uh, we sat down with the, the whole management team. And I asked Larry, the president, what is the capacity of your organization to do projects? And he kind of laughed and he said, I have no idea. <laughs> so I said, why don't we define the sales project? you know, what it's gonna to take to overcome, you know, the sales issue that you have, which is the major issue of the, of the company right now, you're down 50%, the trend down is continuing. And if you don't overcome that, your company may not exist in a year. So let's define the project. We won't take weeks and weeks. We'll do it very quickly in, in two days. I want the whole management team involved. And then you'll tell me what the capacity is of, of your company to do projects. Now, at the time, the company had around 50, five zero active projects. So we start defining the project and we get to a point 
was kind of at the end of the first day, I said, have we got enough yet to meet the goal that you're setting for this project? And the goal was to increase their volume by 50% from where they were within six months. Mm -hmm. Huge, huge goal. Um, this is again, in the middle of the 2008 recession. And uh, Larry said, no, not yet. We have to keep you know, adding things to this project. We got to the end of the second day and the whole management team agreed that they thought that they were there with the project. They looked at the project and the resources involved and the length of time it was gonna take and the intensive effort of all the different teams. And I asked Larry, how many more of these kinds of projects do you have the capacity to do? And he said, none, this is the only project we can do. So I said, now you know what the capacity is of your organization. <laughs> so they went from 50 projects to one project. Now, how do you define what the capacity is of, of your company? So there's two different ways. Uh, we used to talk and we still do about a uh, strategic resource that really defines the whole organization's capacity to do projects. And you may have several strategic resources in different portfolios. This is the resource that you can say, they're multitasked the most out of all the resources that we have doing projects, or we wait the longest period of time. It's, this is the hardest resource to get on a project and we have to wait weeks or months to get this project on our resource. Uh, today, for example, you know, some of the resources that are in huge demand in every company are cybersecurity experts. Mm -hmm. uh, IT, uh, you know, technology experts, they've always, you know, been in high demand, but this is an example. Now, if you have, if you have a team together and you don't agree on what the strategic resource is, my suggestion is take all the suggestions, the names of the different resource groups that you have from the people that are meeting, put them in a bowl blindfold somebody and pick one out of the bowl and make that your strategic resource. Because if you only activate projects to the capacity of that one resource pool, you're gonna have much fewer projects and the projects will already go much faster. And if you're wrong, if it, was, if it turns out it was some other resource, that will come out very, very quickly. Like within two or three weeks, you'll know that someone else is still backlogged and they're still causing projects to slow down. So that's one way. Mm -hmm. Now, what we discovered over 10 years or so of using this approach is that projects were still getting bogged down. Projects were, were still uh, coming against roadblocks and not executing you know, for days or weeks. And when we examined the reason why, what we discovered was that there are resources that are not modeled in projects that can actually kill the flow of projects. For example, top management. Top management attention needs to go to projects to make decisions, you know, to do approvals, um, to give some direction sometimes, uh, to show them what you're doing and you know, get feedback whatever the situation is. Uh, so top management and support groups, support groups like, you know, for example, I had one company where the legal department 
was constantly holding up all the projects because every project they did required legal approval. So if it's top management attention, uh, top management or support group attention, you determine what their capacity is to do projects. And you try a number, you know, for example, there's a company in Switzerland that I worked with that does uh, uh, custom engineering projects. They, they do on-site commissioning of projects. And according to what the resource was that they thought you know, was governing the capacity of, of the company to do projects, they thought it was mechanical engineering. That was the, the bulk of the work that they were doing. But when they set, when they cut the number of active projects in half, they cut from 15 to seven or to eight projects, uh, the projects were still getting bogged down and it became obvious then it, it was, you know, the one engineer, the senior engineer in the company who had to approve everything or, you know, the customer that had to approve the drawings or the top manager in the company who had to, who had the, uh, the final say in the engineering and the risk they were taking on the engineering. And so when they, when they, cut the projects down from eight to seven, everything flowed quickly and they were able to meet all their goals. So it's one of the two methods and, and hopefully these, these examples and stories, you know, help answer that question. Absolutely, they answered and they are practical, I believe. And you uh, mentioned uh, several times that the lean from the top management and uh, with the managers, and I believe in some organizations, uh, when uh, things are moving so quickly and so fast, uh, it is sometimes difficult. Uh, I'm talking from the top management standpoint. If you have 250, 300 projects going simultaneously, it's not always easy to follow up with every of them because uh, actually it's too many moving parts. But you mentioned earlier that there should be some linkage between each project and portfolio management. So portfolio managers have several projects also to, uh, to manage and ob uh, observe. What would be your recommendation? How the, the structure should be? Should be uh, should they report to, to the, uh, the the founders or CEOs or how you vision this problem can be solved? This communication problem with the portfolio managers and the uh, CEOs. So there needs to be a common um, method of capturing the relevant information and looking at the same information in the detail that each one of them needs, you know, in order to answer some very simple questions like, is this project gonna finish when we need it to finish? Mm -hmm. Is it gonna have the whole scope that we need it to have? Um, based on what you know so far, are we still projecting that this project is gonna meet uh, the goal that, you know, that we set out for it? You know, for example, um, let's say it's, it is a sales project. Mm -hmm. Long before the project is finished, you've executed some pieces of it and you expected that when you executed this piece, you would increase your volume by 10%. Mm -hmm. Well, did it increase the volume by 10%? Mm -hmm. Or you know, did it increase by 20%? 
in which case you have you still have a problem, but it's a different kind of problem. Um, the top executives should be able to get that kind of information without having to have you know one or two hour meetings, uh, without having to listen or view irrelevant you know data. And so it just says that you need to have some kind of a tool uh, because there's so much, you know, when you talk about hundreds of projects or even dozens of projects, even 10 or 15 projects, there's so much data that you need a tool to be able to sift and assemble the data and point the project manager to the place that they should be focusing, you know, to answer questions and solve a problem. You should point the resource manager to where they they need to answer the question, what's my priority? Where should the next uh, resource be assigned? Which project? The portfolio manager, where should I focus my effort? You know, on which project or projects? The functional manager, right up to the senior executive, and they all should be viewing the same information, hopefully with the same tool or, you know, interface so that we're not, I mean, one of the biggest wastes of time is when we have information coming from different sources. And now our meetings are, are all about, you know, we disagree on, on where things stand, right? So you, uh, I believe uh, there should be some data collection consistency and the systematic approach to the reporting, uh, how it will be reported. So you, uh, CEOs to receive uh, the reports from one source, which is already filtered, right? Correct. But there, there's another part of this, Leila, and, and the other part is that the system itself needs to be designed to be able to achieve that 95% uh, of, the, of the goal without management intervention. This, this was a Dr. Deming's, uh, Edward, Edwards Deming criteria from the last century. Um, he was the fellow who worked with the, uh, the Japanese uh, to help them improve their industry and become competitive on a worldwide basis. And unfortunately, he did such a good job that in the 80s, <laughs> The Japanese started really uh, beating the Americans at, at their strongest asset, which was the auto industry. Um, he was a statistician by nature, but a holistic thinker. And so this was one of their criteria that, that he had come across. Now, just imagine in projects, um, most people say, oh, it must be impossible because we have this group called the Standish Group that's been doing statistics on projects since the 90s. They typically, you know, look at tens of thousands of projects, IT and, and non-IT projects. And I've been following it since probably around 2000. Since 2000, you know, it's hard for us to have more than 40 or 50% of the projects meet on time, on budget, and within original scope. So we're nowhere near that 95% success rate. And so when you look at, at systems today and, and the system, systems that are in place that are governing project portfolio management, they're not even designed to achieve the goal. For example, uh, traditional project management software that we use to, to build our networks and model our networks. If you have a network that has 10 paths and each path is 10 days and they're overlapped. Mm -hmm. The project uh, software will tell you it's gonna take 10 days to complete. 
totally illogical because when all the paths have to complete on time in order to meet that 10 days, what are the chances? Now, I have one path of 10 days. The project management software gives the same answer. It's gonna take 10 days to complete this project. So it's illogical that one path and 10 paths are gonna complete in the same elapsed time. Um, critical path has a defect according, it, well, I don't think it was defective when it was invented, but starting in the 70s, there was a defect that's, that people didn't recognize until the 80s or 90s, which is it gives you the critical path before looking at the resource, um, the resource leveling. Mm -hmm. Now, what impacts projects more, the, the logical task dependency or the resource dependency? We shouldn't even attempt to answer that question because both of them impact how long the project is gonna take, but critical path only looks at the task dependency then it resource levels, and, and when a resource levels, <laughs> the whole critical path can change, but it doesn't recalculate what the critical path is. So already, you know, there's there's several invalid things or assumptions that are being used in the current or traditional project management software um, that you know are not valid. And so personally, I use critical chain. It's not the only way to take those defects you know, out of the traditional software. There's other software out there and different ways of doing it, but at least you should be using a valid method of um, doing the project management. You should have a valid method of doing networks. I have in one of my books, a 10-step process mm -hmm. for developing a valid network. And every company I've gone into, whether they are experts at project management and they've been doing it for years or not, it might be their first project. When I look at the networks, I don't find valid networks. And so the 10 step- Valid networks. Sorry, uh, Jerry. What do you mean by valid network? Can you give us more details about a valid network? What it means? You, the way I build a valid network is I start with the goals for that project. And the goals for that project must be linked to the overall organization goals. So either functional goals or overall company or, or organization goals. Number one, the charter for the project should detail um, what it's gonna take for that project to meet the project goals, what those project goals are explicitly, the risks for the project, all of that information needs to be in the charter before you even start to build a network. Because ultimately the network has to meet the charter and the charter has to meet that part of the company's goals that it's committing to. So that's, that's one example. Before I try and determine what the critical path or critical chain is for the project, I must make sure that every task in the network has resources assigned to it, valid resources. And I don't want people's names in that resource. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm gonna execute a task, you know, three months from now, five months from now, six months from now, how do I know that Joe is gonna be available or Layla's gonna be available? I don't. 
But I do know that for that task, when that task becomes available to work on, I need a, uh, a cybersecurity expert. I need a mechanical engineer, you know, whatever it is. So I, I define my tasks by resource name or resource pool, not by individual names. Now, I wanna make sure that in a valid network, um, I've got the people who are responsible for doing some of the critical work to have scrutinized their part of that, that network. Otherwise, how do I know that I've defined the task correctly? In a lot of cases, you see major pieces of networks that are defined, but the people that are gonna do the work, they never had a chance to review it. Mm -hmm. And on and on and on it goes. <laughs> so those are examples and it's all covered in, you know, mm -hmm. in that 10 step network building process. You talked about how to overcome five courses in one of uh, your books. Uh, and is uh, that related how you choose the right project mix during the strategic planning? So, uh, sorry, I, I thought about this. And I wanted to uh, <laughs> go by my notes. There are, first of all, so many, so many curses. Uh, in, in project management, little and big, but um, you have to start with, with a valid system to begin with, you know, and if you don't have a valid system, meaning a system that's capable uh, theoretically in the way that the system is designed to meet the goals of, of the projects 95% of the time without management intervention, then already <laughs> you have a system that's doomed to failure. One of the curses, and, and we talked about this earlier, is starting more projects than the organization has the capacity to do. And that leads to a couple of other curses in, in execution. You have very, very bad multitasking of, of resources, you know, is one thing. And then you have conflicts. People are fighting over resources, you know, between functional areas, uh, between resource managers and project managers. Uh, so you have you have that going on. Uh, I talked about the bad networks. That's that's another you know major curse. Um, the system, the, the project management system, is not designed to deal with variation. So variation is one of the things that Dr. Deming discussed uh, a lot, and and he said you can't have a system that's going to be predictable if it can't deal with variation. And he talked about common cause variation and special cause variation. I'm not gonna get into <laughs> you know, the details on it and, and I'm not the statistical expert, but you know, very simply common cause variation uh, is the type of thing that happens in every project, every day, people get sick. People aren't available to start the work when you had planned for them to start. They're busy still on, on the last task. Um, we didn't get the approval when we expected to get it. The subcontractor is taking longer than we thought they would take to, to complete this work. Uh, there was a snowstorm and the truck couldn't deliver the materials. I mean, and on and on it, it goes. You're not going, you know, common cause variation are those things that you're not going to eliminate. But if you want your project to succeed, you have to allow for the fact that it's going to occur. Mm -hmm. We can't stop snowstorms. We haven't yet found a way to stop people getting sick, <laughs> sometimes very sick, many people at a time. 
uh, you know, and so on. So uh, special cause variation is something that you need to be able to deal with and still um, uh, deliver your project on time. So that's when you have management intervention and that should be happening less than 5% of the time. You know, it wasn't just that our subcontractor, uh, you know, was, they were supposed to take 15 days to do something and now they're, they're saying 20 days. No, they're saying 115 days, <laughs> special cause variation. Okay, what, what can we do? Let me go and meet with them. Let me go on site and, and see how we can work with them, you know, to bring that back. So, I mean, that's another thing that systems are not designed to be able to handle common cause variation and still complete on time. And so uh, the extent of common cause variation to give you the extent of what you need to plan for is, it should be a third of the overall project duration. Mm -hmm. that, that's gonna be taken up by common cause variation mm -hmm. as an example. Well, and and a lot, sorry, one more, the last one, <laughs> not the last one, but one of the important ones is that lack of executive understanding, you know, buy-in and commitment to follow the system. If you don't have that, your system's never going to work. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, you mentioned a few of them, and it means that once you're aware of them, you can deal and be focused on them, and uh, somehow you will try to overcome them after you are aware, right? Correct. Yeah, you need you need to have a system that's capable of dealing with all of those, and in some cases preventing, in some cases helping the project manager, the resource manager, the portfolio manager, the functional executive, mm -hmm. and the top executive all operate in sync with each other mm -hmm. to achieve the common goals. And, and, you know, this is not a triviality because you're, you're dealing, it's not just a, the idea of a system and, and software to, to help you, but it's getting everybody educated and bought in to behaving the right way and to knowing what their behavior needs to be. It doesn't need to take a long time to do that, but if you don't have the top managers buy in on this, it's kind of hopeless because they'll be the first one that misbehaves. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's throw five more projects in because I just decided, you know, we need to meet my goals and these projects are not meeting it and doing it irrespective of the capacity of the company to do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, you were describing the ideal, perfect world when everybody understands from the bottom to the top and the CEO <laughs> level the, 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 how the capacity should be uh, like uh, uh, overviewed and assessed and so on. But uh, in reality, it's a really big challenge. It's a huge challenge. And actually, recently, I found out that the that uh, projects which are estimated in Georgia, most of them does not really have a management reserve in them. So they have contingency reserve included, but most of them, they don't have management reserve. And this is additional one of the system fail failures, I believe, which exists uh, uh, currently. Do you think that currently uh, most of the organizations today know how to do projects? Short answer, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know what you said is, is an example, by the way, 
I think you said something like in my in my perfect world, well, you know, maybe I smoked too much marijuana, you know, when I was <laughs> in university. I don't know. But um, no, it's not a perfect world, but I I found in companies around the world that top management, if you don't bore them and you show them what's in it for them, they're actually quite eager to learn, you know, just don't take two or three hours <laughs> and don't go into you know deep statistics if you're if you know if you're dealing with somebody who doesn't have that background i i learned the lesson in a very in a very a strong way uh i was doing one of my buy-in and understanding sessions with a top management team and everyone was fine <laughs> except the president and his background was sales and after an hour of the statistics and the statistics were very logical. And, you know, in terms of depth, they were maybe at a 10% where it could have gone to 100%. But after an hour, he literally said, stop. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't, he couldn't take it anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that they are open if they can see what's in it for them. And they can see a clear path to how they can make it work. And I'll, I'll just give you one, you know, quick example of that. So, um, we we worked with a company in Switzerland, this this uh, make to order engineering company. They they did uh, ship unloader and conveyor systems, and they were very sophisticated. <clears throat> and they had a track record of about fifty percent of their projects finishing on time. And they were a project company, meaning that they made their entire living, their revenues, on doing projects. Now. I spent a week with the top management team. And I, I said to the, the top manager up front, I said, you have to spend a week diving in depth on what it means to have a systems approach and to understand in depth you know, the project management system. And you have to be involved uh, after the fact in, in running weekly meetings until you know that one of your people can can do it the same way you can and so he committed and in switzerland it's interesting they also have um, i forget what they called it but it's like an employee panel or an employee union where the employees also have to approve any major change in the company and so um, we got this uh, senior executive to make the presentation to the employees and get their buy-in which they did so the first week he's, he's running the weekly meeting and just before he, he starts the meeting, he sees that one of the employees who was supposed to fill out their, their time report didn't fill it out. And he, as a general manager, called this individual who was like four levels down from him and uh, he said, uh, George, I see that, you know, you haven't uh, com completed your task update. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're as top management team, we're trying to look at the information and assess where our projects stand. Uh, do you think you might be able to do that in the next minute or two? <laughs> oh, yes, yes. And it, that never happened again with that individual. That's an example of top management, not just understanding the system, but understanding how involved they need to be in order to make the system work. Mm -hmm. So I get the commitment up front that they need to spend the time. Um, I try to make it 
not boring for them because the worst sin you can have when you're doing a presentation to top management is bored boredom mm -hmm. you know boredom they'll be on their phones they'll be <laughs> looking on their computers they'll be doing anything but listening so you have to make it interesting and you have to tie it into what's in it for them mm -hmm. so right capacity right resources right systems uh enough attention from the ceos probably you mentioning them so often that we have to be really thinking about them uh, really really thinking about them well time flies and we have exceeded our limit of 45 minutes and we have questions from audience thank you everybody who uh, has posted the questions and uh, we have hellos from different parts of the world uh hi hillary uh we have questions from Hillary. Uh, how? Uh, so the question was, how you begin a newly assigned project? So uh, I've been the consultant to companies, and a lot of them have not done projects in a formal way before. Mm -hmm. Regardless, the right way to begin a project is with the project charter and to make sure you have a project charter um, and that everyone who's going to be involved in the project understands uh, you know what that charter should contain i give an example um, you know in the book of what a what a charter should look look like and then organizations typically customize it to what they need but there should be enough information in the charter that when you finish building a network you can go line by line in the charter and make sure that the network is meeting what's in the charter. So the goals of the project, um, any um, uh, critical, uh, tangible outcomes of the project, um, major inputs to the project, uh, description of any of the scope items of the project, all of that needs to be in, in the project charter. Uh, and, and it may be referring to other documents, you know, for example, engineering drawings, customer documents, and so on. Um, but basically, it's got to have all that information. That's how you start the project before you do anything else. Um, before you build the network, and the network is necessary in order to then model that, that project plan, basically, uh, and part of the goal is, is when do we need this project complete in order to model that with all the other projects in the system. And so you need to have either software or if it's very few projects that a company does an Excel system, some way to model what you've got to see how it can be executed, when it can be executed uh, without creating a major resource overload. Mm -hmm. And can it be executed within the duration that you need it to be executed in if it starts, if it can only start three months from now. But when you model the project, it said it's going to take nine months to complete. Is that good enough? Or do we need to work now on the project duration, even starting, you know, three months from now? Do we need to maybe change priorities of projects and have that one start sooner. So all of that needs to be done. These are, you know, steps in, in in uh, getting the project finally planned and into a schedule 
before you even start executing it. But the first step is the charter, for sure. I see. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for your response. So here is another question from Hillary. Can you describe a time when you were involved in a project that failed? How did you overcome the failure and what are the lessons learned on that project? <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, yes, more than one. But the first one that actually had me change my career path uh, from, from IT to overall company strategy was I was a sales operations manager for a technology company that sold computer networks and equipment to the Fortune 1000 companies. And you have to picture that this is back in the um, in the late, well, the early 90s. None of the salespeople, none of the hundreds of salespeople in the company were using technology in order to, to take orders from clients, which they often did on the client's site. And so they didn't know when they were taking the order, which items were in stock and which items were not in stock. And so what was very common was the salespeople go back to their com uh, computer systems where they have access to the computer, the main computer, um, the company fortress computer that no one can access <laughs> except the IT people. And, and they, they get back and they find out that, you know, 25% of what the client was ordering was not in stock. So... I created a project and, and amazingly got it approved within three minutes by the company president. Three. That every one of the salespeople would have a PC, their own PC, and they would have the software on the PC to do the basic things like proposals and whatever. I mean, if you're selling the technology, you should be using it, right, as a salesperson. But most importantly, to have the connection to the main computer to be able to check inventory when they were on the client site and do substitutions immediately, not <laughs> go back and forth and waste the customer's time and their time. Uh, and it was gonna improve the sales productivity by around 20%. And the, the CEO bought right into it because he was a techie to begin with and he saw immediately how this was gonna help. So, we got all the PCs for every um, individual, got them trained on the basic you know, PC technology. Microsoft Windows was just uh, coming out at that time. But the IT director refused to provide the software immediately to interface to their inventory system. <laughs> and, and the reason that he gave was, we have another priority called EDI, which back in the 90s, was an acronym for electronic data interchange, it was how to get the wrong information faster from the customer to their computer. <laughs> I mean, a total failure, absolutely no tie to the company goals. And I could not persuade him, even with the president's pressure on him, I could not persuade him to change the priority. And so all these computers landed in, in the hands of the salespeople and the tangible benefit of the productivity improvement was not there to a large extent. So I call that a failure. How do I overcome that? I make sure that before I start working with any company, 
I get the executive commitment and understanding, not just the CEO, but the entire top management team to, to my playback of what their, their major problems are before I start working on solving the problems. And that's gone a long way to overcoming that, but I have to change careers to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually this is uh, really, really important that you change things quite often. Um, we have questions where I can get a book and we will be posting the link to the, uh, it's sold on the Amazon and we will be posting it on the YouTube at the um, titles uh, down to the YouTube recording. Uh, your, you. Yes, uh, it will be actually recorded and we will post it as usually on our channel. And uh, hi from uh, Romania. Uh, actually, um, uh, what is your first advice for project manager? Is it real the statement, I would rather eat a cactus than run a project? Actually, and I would uh, add from my colleagues who I see attending that uh, what would be your first advice for the project manager and portfolio manager who is young and has lots of projects in the portfolio? So, um, I don't know how many of you have heard something called the serenity prayer, uh, you know, which is uh, give me the, the courage to change the things that I can change and the strength to accept the things that I cannot change. Uh, so say your serenity prayer, <laughs> but uh, don't underestimate either project managers or portfolio managers or project resources, the extent to which you can influence top management on learning and accepting some of the rules that you need in, in an organization to be successful with, with projects. If you wanna get a top manager's attention, do not go to them and say, you have to decrease the number of projects. <laughs> you have to push this project back you know, for six months because already now they've stopped listening to you. If you go to a top manager and you say, I think I have a way where we can do more projects with the same resources, get them done faster and link them better to the company goals, now you'll start to get their attention. So don't underestimate your ability to have that kind of conversation. Now, in order to have the depth behind you know, the concept, uh, make sure that you've read some books, not necessarily mine. There's lots of excellent books on project management. Um, but make sure that you understand what a systems approach is and that you can talk their language and communicate it, start a conversation. You know, what I found is that <clears throat> it doesn't take much to get their interest up because they're experiencing the problems in their way, the same way that the project manager and portfolio manager is. In other words, they're frustrated, they're not meeting their goals. They're constantly getting complaints, uh, but they're not being told how to solve the problems. Well, if someone says, I think I know how we might be able to do this, and, and maybe you have an experimental approach that you, know, you just want permission to try, you know, don't underestimate your ability to communicate with them at their level and something that interests them. 
Excellent, excellent advice. And uh, we have last question we can uh, take for now because we have one minute left. And uh, hello from Georgia, this is Shorena. Hi Shorena, sometimes stakeholder is saying that I would like to run the project X, but don't have KPI. Is it normal to focus on outcomes, not KPIs? Well, the, the KPIs, um, if they're correct, uh, can be helpful. I mean, you need leading indicators to tell you when a project's going off track. And you're not going to get the outcomes if your project goes off track very early and, and continues off track. Um, you need leading indicators to tell you when it's a resource problem versus uh, uh, an individual task problem or some other kind of issue, maybe with a supplier. Um, I, I just hesitate to call them KPIs because all they are is information and you need information, but calling one a, a key indicator versus not a key indicator, I think is misleading. Um, just call them indicators that to help you determine where the problem is. Mm -hmm. And you need to understand the indicators in order to get the outcomes. I mean, how do you focus on outcomes if you don't know where a problem is, right? So you have to be able to, to understand where the problem is. Yeah. Right. Uh, one hour flew like just, <laughs> and we could talk about project management more and more, but we have limited time. We have our projects to finish on time, on budget and in scope. <laughs> yeah. So um, thank you so much, Gary, for your time and for this very interesting discussion. As we mentioned, we will be posting this recording on our YouTube channel and anybody who wants to listen it later and wants to share with the friends, feel free to do so. And um, I, I wish you uh, a nice day. Thank you everybody for attending the event. And uh, I look forward to seeing you to our next talk, which is planned for the uh, October, later October, and we will be discussing digital transformation. So thank you all and have a nice day. Thanks, take care. Thank you all. Thank you, Lela, for this great event again. Uh, be safe, take care. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, all of you. Bye, colleagues. Have a nice day. Ciao. Bye.